Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the EMILY program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics, and we ask that you use your own discretion when listening or that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert, and in today's episode, we are exploring a parent's experience of their child's eating disorder. Joining us for this conversation is Rafaela. Rafaela lives in Rochester, New York, with her husband and twin 14-year-old daughters. Previously, she worked in healthcare administration and is now a full-time caregiver to her daughter, who has experienced anorexia nervosa, as well as a lesser-known eating disorder called ARFID, which stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. And she hopes that sharing her story will help other families navigating their child's treatment and recovery. We're so grateful for you joining us this morning and wonder if you can just start by telling us a bit about your child's eating disorder and and the journey towards recovery that you're on. Okay. My daughter is 14 years old now. We noticed like some behavioral changes around food around Thanksgiving of 2017. Definitely like a little uh, restricting and the anxiety piece um, around eating. About a month or so later, we noticed that she was not um, taking a lot of food for lunch at school. And this began our journey into um, making sure that she took something more so than a banana and water. And then we noticed that the lunches were coming home and were not, you know, eaten. And then she admitted to throwing them out. As far as like that goes, by January of 2018, uh, she was complaining about um, stomach pain and issue issues like that. So that began our journey into urgent care appointments, pediatrician appointments, ultrasounds, blood work, and then finally an x-ray that captured, you know, the constipation. By that point, we had a hospital stay for about three days in our area. And then we began doing Miralax and trying to help her out with the constipation. By that point, she was afraid to eat and eat very little. Eventually, along this course of those next two or three months, we tried to find doctors and we tried to um, find a GI doctor. And at this point, we really didn't know what we were headed towards. But we, um, you know, got a referral to a doctor, a pediatric doctor that did like some feeding things. But in that journey, in that, you know, navigation, we ended up doing an endoscopy for her. And then we began doing shakes for her. But by the time, you know, you're doing the Muralax and everything and all that, she lost a significant amount of weight um, and then started not wanting to really eat. And so that was about May of 2018. And by that point, we had heard the word ARFID, which we, you know, we were trying to educate ourselves and uh, to finding out what that was all about. And then before we knew it, um, she was getting dehydrated and we were in the hospital again in June of 2018 into a 17-day program um, at our local hospital that had the eating disorder piece. So we went in and by this point, she was at her lowest weight. They did the 17-day the program, but she came home with an NG tube. So I went out on FMLA and stayed home and you know, we tried to get her into a program as she started eating, but they wanted her to eat 50%. And if she wasn't doing that, they would not take her, you know, because she needed more help, obviously. So I tried to do my best at home, you know, a mom who really didn't know a lot about what I was up against at this point yet. You know, me and my husband continued to research and um, 
found a lady who had a lot of eating disorder experience and, you know, just tried to get, you know, the right help in, in, in place for her, you know, and that was really hard. It's not a straight line. Obviously, most people uh, with adolescents in this, in this situation um, know that. So we just, you know, we're up and down, up and down, back and forth into the hospital. Um, she kept the feeding tube in for quite a while. And, you know, we did get the weight up and she was good for a while and went to school and things were, you know, not great, but they were okay. That next following year, we decided to try a place. And by the time we got there, she only stayed one day and then she ended up in the hospital for refeeding. But she did say that the place was very nice and they worked together, but she just wasn't ready to do that. Then we went to another inpatient over in Massachusetts. You know, she was there for about three and a half weeks and it just wasn't working. So again, we discharged her there and we brought her home and then she went back in the hospital in our area because she really wasn't doing well. I think at that point she kind of like was giving up, like, you know, she didn't know how to navigate her illness at all and she's still fairly young. Then we got her situated where she, you know, was safe to go home again and we got more help. In our area, we have Easter Seals of New York, which after weeks of doing paperwork gave us some help of getting like um, an aid, like a, like a PCA in the house to help us with those like behaviors at night because she was um, having a hard time sleeping and, you know, dysregulated a lot. Just that battle with the anxiety and everything. Um, so we had that going on. In the meantime, she was on um, Alexa Pro, you know, all this time for about 15 months, which really didn't do much. And when they increased it, we got more agitation and more behaviors. So we were talking about, you know, maybe doing something else, but that never uh, came around um, with the doctors to agree to do that. So now we're, um, you know, here again with her struggling, you know, even this year. And we've been back and forth. Um, we tried another program here out in New York, and it was not good. They didn't have what she needed again. And now we're at another inpatient in the hospital um, out of town. You know, I'm not living at home. My husband and my other daughter are home. I'm not. And she's doing better now as far as, you know, eating salad foods and stuff. And we're trying another medication on her now. And so far, you know, she seems very tired and she seems like still very sad and I think depressed that she's been in the hospital this long. And again, as we're trying to find what's going to be right for her, because, you know, we feel like um, we've done the circuit around our area and it's not working. We're hoping hopefully like maybe this week we can transfer her um, to another facility that, you know, I guess can take the time with her. I think that's what she needs. Yeah. Wow. That's such a story. I think it, it really highlights, I think what's, what's all too common where parents end up moving around from place to place and trying to find the right fit for, for what's going on. And, and there's so much about it that's trying to understand what's going on. Right. And, and what, what's needed. Uh, let, if, if you're okay, let's sort of deconstruct a little bit through the process so we can really fully understand. If you can sort of take yourself back to before, before the eating changed, before the lunch started getting thrown away, sort of before that, I, I heard you mention anxiety is something that maybe she 
was st- struggling with. Would you would you say that the anxiety preceded the eating disorder? Was that something that you noticed when she was younger? Can you speak a little bit about your experience with with what life was like with her before this all sort of emerged as as related to eating? Oh yes, she definitely struggled with anxiety pretty much all through like the beginning of her grade school. Um, she definitely battles anxiety. She um, also has selective mutism as a young kid up until about fourth grade. We did get some therapy for her and really worked hard with a therapist. And it was all around school. It started, it was at school that she would not talk, had a really hard time. Definitely anxiety played a big piece that it always has for her. So we got her into um, a different school um, in fifth grade because she was diagnosed with dyslexia as well. She's highly functioning, but she also, you know, has a dyslexia. At, when she was at a young age, at uh, around two, they diagnosed her with the, the PPD NOS, but it was unspecified. Um, but we still see some things that are, um, you know, uh, that can contribute to like being on the spectrum. And I think that from all the research that me and my husband have done, we definitely see that they're coming around with eating disorders and kids being on the spectrum, you know, and not, not being diagnosed with it. Right. For sure. Yeah. That's, I was just thinking that, that we know that the research tells us that, that anxiety is often a a precursor to the, to an eating disorder. And you're right, more and more, we're starting to understand more about the link between the autism spectrum and kids who exhibit signs of eating disorders and the parts of the brain that may be involved in each and, and what's the overlap. I don't think we we as a um, field fully understand yet, but it is a, a an interesting story that really fits with what the research is telling us. So that, that makes a lot of sense that often parents will notice some anxiety and some other things first, and then now they're in the eating disorder part of it. And how does it all connect together? Right. And I think what's happening in most of the hospitals and the inpatient settings is nobody wants to reach across the aisle. Mm-hmm. You know, we've asked, we, well, of course I've asked, you know, and nobody wants to do that. Like the medical floors are just staying the medical floors and, you know, the autism um, uh, doctors and people are just not wanting to have more conversation about it, you know, maybe do some more research, even in our area. And I think it's, it's going to hurt, you know, it's going to do more harm than good for a lot of um, the patients that are going to go through this because, you know. It's, um, it takes a long time for recovery to come into um, play for these patients. It's just, it really, at this point, it definitely bothers me. Mm-hmm. I'm still just trying to find uh, the right team and find someone that, that will listen to us and, uh, and the treatment for her. Right, right. It is a, it is a, a reflection all too, an, an sort of unfortunate reflection of how our sort of mental health world and physical health world for far too long have been separated, but turns out they're actually connected, right? In the, in the human person, they are the same. So it's, it's a, a, I can completely hear your, your struggle in trying to navigate that. It makes a lot of sense. You know, it strikes me that this has really impacted your life, right? That this has got to have had an enormous impact in your, in your life, in your family life. Can you speak a little bit to that? I think that parents often feel like, you know, the, eating disorder and other health conditions show up and boy, life really takes a, a turn. Can you speak a little bit to how it's impacted your family? 
Um, yeah, um, I definitely think that, um, you know, since we're all separated right now and I'm the one out here, you know, um, definitely, you know, you feel very isolated yourself from family and friends. Activities are really hard to have when you're traveling back and forth to the hospitals or wherever your, your adolescent is. The fact that, you know, I'm not working um, impacts us financially and sleeping is sometimes hard because I'm not living at home and with my other child. So that makes it, you know, makes it really hard. I feel like I'm missing out on things. So life is not normal for us at all. But I just hold on and I just say, you know what, I take it one day at a time. If anything I've learned with this is um, I can't plan for tomorrow yet, but I can do today. And I've had to slow myself down a lot. And that wasn't the kind of person I was before all this, I was very um, structured and had my routine and I kind of just stuck to it. But now with um, the eating disorder, we, we don't do that. And I don't know, you know, when eventually I can return to, uh, you know, finding work. But I definitely think there's something else out there for me, even in doing the podcast with you. I think it's important to get the message out there that we need to do more and there needs to be more help for people right. um, with this illness. Absolutely. I mean, we couldn't agree more. There, there definitely is a lot, a lot more help that's needed and a lot more understanding that's needed. Can you speak a little bit about, you know, how did it, how did it feel for you to learn about this, you know, add an eating disorder to the other uh, diagnoses that, that sound like were sort of around before the, the eating disorder came into the picture? How did it feel to learn that this eating problem and and weight loss and all of that was a thing, had a name, was an eating disorder? Often parents have significant experience around getting a diagnosis. How was that for you? Yeah, I mean, it took us many months to get a diagnosis. Right away, we didn't know that, you know, we were going to have a diagnosis of ARFID before the anorexia diagnosis. You know, I think that for, uh, for me and my husband, we were just, you know, just trying to find help. Like, why is she feeling this way? How can we, you know, how can we fix this? And before you know it, you're, you're, you're racing to each appointment, you know, making lots of phone calls and, you know, just trying to follow up. I think you just, you kind of just get in that mindset where your head is like in it and it's spinning around and you're trying to get the help, but it takes so much time. And I felt at one point, that we were losing like precious time to get, get her the help. And then all of a sudden we were in a 17 day program before we knew it. And it was like pretty serious at that point and her health and her weight and everything were just, you know, so compromised. And uh, she was scary to me. You know, all this happened in, the, in a matter of a few months of trying to find her some good help. And then we had, you know, the diagnosis. I would just say, you know, I was scared. I didn't know what I was up against. And I think by the time she got into that program, I was, of course, doing lots of research and finding out that most medical floors don't have the help that we need. Um, And another thing is like the psychiatric um, piece, like they'll have psychiatrists, but they don't cross over either. In my case, my daughter had an NG tube, so she could not go over to the psychiatric part of the hospital. She had to stay on the medical side. Again, another barrier. And I think that's another problem is all these barriers. So if you need more help, you can't go this way. You can't go. You have to stay right there. And that's what we found is we felt very stuck. Our kid could not, could not get the other piece. Like it, it, 
it wouldn't, you know, it just doesn't go that way in the medical system. So, so again, you know, I ask the questions and sometimes there's not enough funding at certain hospitals um, to get like, you know, a DBT therapist or, you know, or a CBT therapist on the floors there to kind of begin the process of what these kids need before they go off to a residential program or do like, if they're well enough, do like an intensive outpatient program or partial hospitalization. I think there's, um, it's a disorder. And I, I, I've often said that it's a disorder for a reason. There is no like straight line. And we really need to look at that piece um, to get, you know, more success and not just keep uh, relapsing on and on and on or not getting the right help and ending up in all these hospitals on and on. That's where I am in my journey um, to get her better. Yeah, absolutely. How do you continue to educate yourself? What have you found to be helpful sources of information for you? For me, um, I, you know, I read a lot of the, you know, psychology peer reviewed items that have already, you know, been written um, for doctors. I've also, um, my husband and I read a lot of the books that are out there. You know, we were, we were also handed a lot of books in the beginning, a few months into our, um, our journey, like uh, A Brave Girl Eating, um, Surviving an Eating Disorder, anorexia and other eating disorders. You know, we read a lot about the family-based therapy, you know, and really tried to find out what really would work with her. But if you don't have it in your area or there's not a lot of people that are certified in it, that also makes it hard. So you have to really try to find something that's going to work, you know? Right. Yep. I, th I think that's a all too common experience where there, there are some good interventions out there, but they're not always accessible in every area to everybody. There are insurance barriers. There's the barriers you spoke of in terms of the, the medical system, the way it's constructed. It really is, it really is a challenge uh, to, to find your way through this. I, I imagine another challenge too is sort of telling other people about it uh, how do you how do you talk to others your extended family friends school um how do you talk about this experience with other people and, and try to help them understand and help them be part of the solution um you know i i i talk to my daughter's school of course i do keep in contact with the nurse there weekly um as she's not there right this minute I'm really, you know, I'm just really honest, especially with the nurse at her school. Um, she's seen me go in and out of the school um, for quite a while with, with my daughter. Um, nobody really understands. And that's kind of the, the hard part. You really got to um, have a lot of patience with people because people are not really educated enough. What I see is even in the high school setting, there's a lot of kids that are struggling and it's not, they're still not educated enough to understand some of um, the struggles that go on and how the illness works. So I just kind of, you know, tell them how it's going. And I'm a very honest and upfront kind of person. So I just, um, I don't really sugarcoat too much, but um, they try to give advice. You know, um, some of the people either who have had people struggling with an eating disorder in the past, you know, but things have definitely changed in our, in our medical system that you know, even with insurances and how they work. So really, I just kind of just tell them what's going on. And if they understand, great. And but, you know, otherwise, they have a lot of questions. And, uh, you know, it's just hard to 
<laughs> to kind of navigate all of that and, you know, and have the patience because I'm, you know, you, we're very tired. Sure. Of course you are. That's, that makes total sense. Yeah. I, I, I find, I find a similar, a similar experience. I, I travel a lot in my work. And when I say to somebody I'm sitting next to on an airplane or you know, wherever I am that I work in eating disorders, I'm always struck by the response. Sometimes it's, oh, my you know, daughter, husband, sister, brother, son, whatever, uh, has had an eating disorder or is struggling and, and we can connect over that. I'm, but I'm, I'm really struck by, by people who say something that's, I have to believe, just really uninformed. Like, oh, I wish I could get an eating disorder, you know, just for a couple months <laughs> so I could lose weight. And I think there's this, such an obsession in our society with, with weight and appearance and weight loss. And people just don't understand how eating disorders work. They don't understand that they're a mental illness. They don't understand that they're a really complex, multifaceted brain-based disorder that you know, we're starting to understand more. They don't, they don't know all that. They just see the, the part about eating changing or losing weight or gaining weight or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it is yeah. a, lot of, a lot more education to be done out, out in the world, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. I think they don't understand the suffering of, of the patients and, and the family, you know? Yeah. Yeah. These illnesses are really, really difficult to have. They're really difficult to experience as a family member. They, they are really very fierce illnesses that, that we are learning more and more about how to treat them and, and how to help people recover from them. That's the good news. But they are difficult illnesses to have and certainly not an illness that anybody would ever choose to get or choose to have. That's a, a first step, I think, in education is that nobody, nobody wants to get this illness just like nobody wants a broken limb and those things happen. Right. What, uh, what strategies do you find helpful? I loved uh, the comment you made about sort of taking it one day at a time and, and just taking it as a come you can do today and tomorrow will be there waiting for you. What other strategies do you find helpful in managing this process as you go? You know, I think for me, um, if I'm having, you know, my own off day, we have to have time to kind of walk away a little bit. Mentally and physically, it is challenging for any mom or dad out there to, you know, spend every day thinking about their kid's eating disorder. I just sometimes have to walk away, even if it's for a couple of hours, you know, an afternoon or anything. Um, you need time to kind of rest your thoughts in your own in your own head and kind of, you know, take a take a little bit for yourself. And they always say self care. Get your hair done, or go get a haircut, or take a walk with a dog or, you know, and if you need extra sleep, then take a nap if you can. Uh, you know, that's kind of what I kind of do um, for myself. You know, I can't speak for my husband, but that's kind of what I do. I do have to like take a break from time to time. It does get very overwhelming for me. Absolutely. Yeah, of course it does. That, that makes perfect sense. I think it's, I think that's a really important point that that it's sort of like you know you know put your own oxygen mask on before helping others concept that that you need to take care of yourself so that you can be helpful and take care of your your family uh, and i think that is often difficult to remember in the in the in the moment and and also i think people feel like particularly parents feel like they they want to do everything they can for their kids of course they do and part of doing everything you can is taking good care of yourself and knowing that it's okay, it's okay to step away and take a little break and, and regroup and 
find that time for yourself. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you can do that. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about um, when you've been at, when you've been at home and you've been trying to manage the eating disorder, you've been trying to manage meal times or social situations or, or school. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how does it work in terms of things that you have to do to help manage her food intake, to help manage her being able to get what she needs? Yeah. Mealtime is definitely when the anxiety um, can be very high. The parents usually have to be in control of the mealtime. So, you know, I'd have to be very good about that because I knew that her anxiety is going to be up around mealtime. You know, we always sat as a family. Usually we try to do that mostly every night at my home. You know, having everybody come to the table, usually I would try to do either a stretch exercise before sitting down, take the focus off of just the mealtime and then sit down. I try to have a quiet setting, not not too much talk because it makes you nervous because you don't know like what's going to be next with uh, with her. Um, so then we would just sit down at mealtime and I kind of set a time um, just like they would do in programs, like about a half an hour um, and see how much she can do. And if not, we would supplement it with the insurers. Every day um, is different. Some days she would just sit down and be okay with doing the meals and other days she would struggle either breakfast, lunch, or dinner and snacks, she may struggle. And, you know, in her head, you know, the eating disorder may be loud that day. And sometimes you have to like take a couple minutes and then go back to it, but you don't want to give her too much time to not do it. So we would do like, um, if she was having trouble, we would let her go. Um, we have like a little porch room. She can go sit for five minutes. So we give her the five minutes and then she has to come back to the table. So kind of keeping it a little structured, and like I said, sometimes she does it, sometimes she doesn't. If it's a good day, we have a win. If it's a bad day, well, okay, she didn't finish it, so we lost out on something. But, you know, we just kind of move on. Yeah, they have another another opportunity coming down the road pretty pretty soon to, to try again. Right. How about, uh, you know, we as we learn more about the genetics of eating disorders, we know that eating disorders uh, run in families genetically because of the the genetic predispositions, certainly we think some of which is connected to predisposition for anxiety. How, how about your other daughter? Have you noticed anything with her as a sibling? Have you had any concerns there? Uh, no, um, no. My other daughter is, you know, okay. I think with all this, I see a little anxiety with us living in different areas, but you know, she definitely has a little anxiety, my other daughter, but nothing like that. No. I mean, she eats okay. And, um, you know, she's going to school. She's a good student. So going along with that, trying to keep it as normal as we can for her. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's important. What um, advice or words of encouragement might you have for other families, I know that families often find, you know, this is such a challenging experience. It's hard to stay motivated and supporting your child's recovery. What words of, of encouragement do you have for other families or, or things you'd like them to remember? You know, I think definitely taking care of yourself a little bit here and there when you have that little, I guess, breathing room is what I call it. And, you know, um, you're definitely not alone. I found out that um, through going to groups, I have a couple of mothers that I've kept in contact with. So whenever you're feeling like frustrated or you just need to vent to somebody, you have somebody to call. Um, I think that's important. 
to find that someone um, to, to kind of have that someone that you can call at night and, uh, you know, follow up with them. So that's what I do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That, that support is really important. Right. And I have my sister. And so I talk to her, you know, daily. She checks in. So, yeah, just to not feel like you're by yourself um, because it is, you know, the struggle and the suffering is real and um, it takes a lot. It takes a lot out of you. Yeah. These are isolating or it can be very isolating kinds of illnesses. So certainly it's it's important to stay connected. And uh, at the, the end of, of February is Eating Disorder Awareness Week. And there's a lot of effort around the country to really increase the awareness of eating disorders and let people know about these illnesses. Uh, if you could, if you could sort of, this is a magic wand question, if you could sort of wave your magic wand and let people know one or two things about eating disorders, does anything come to the top of your mind that you just love to have everybody know about? Uh, well, I think I said it before, uh, recovery is not a straight line. And if you feel like, uh, you know, something's not right, um, don't procrastinate, follow up with it. I think that, you know, finding your role in all of this is, uh, is another important thing that I've been trying to like, wrap my head around. It sounds like you're a, you're a strong and really beautiful advocate for your, for your daughter. I think parents often find themselves needing to be a really strong advocate, in the, particularly in the healthcare system, when, when there are so many different services involved, different people involved from a physical health side, mental health side, that uh, I, I would personally love to see our, our healthcare system work in a, in a more coordinated fashion in some ways. But I, I know that parents often find themselves as the, the connector between all of those and having to be that advocate for their child's care in a way that they never expected to have to do. But it sounds like that's a place that you've found uh, a way to use your voice and, and try to help be an advocate for your daughter to get her what she needs. Yes, yes. It, it is. It's educating yourself enough to kind of push it. And I think that some of the providers don't like to be pushed and they don't like to be asked and they don't like to be challenged. And I definitely think that I've challenged them and it's not to be, you know, mean, it's just to be like, okay, well, how can we get to the next spot? Because if we don't get to the next step, I just feel like we're just going to be standing in this little box and, you know, the eating disorder just runs around us and we're never going to get anywhere. And we're going to have you know, the same thing kind of happened over and over and over again. I just feel like um, it definitely has to change. I'm only one person, but I definitely feel if there's more people out there that um, even providers or whatever that are willing to do some more work and getting it to that, to that spot where we can have like a combined system, I think it would be helpful. Yeah, we, we have a, um, a, a way we think about treatment here at the Emily program that's that we use the three-legged stool concept that the three legs of the stool are the, the first leg is obviously the, the you know, the evidence-based interventions, the, the treatment we know should be deployed. That's a really important leg of the stool. Another really critical leg of the stool is the, the family and the client, what, what works for, for each person and what, what perspective do families bring. The clinicians know the, the treatment in many, you know, many situations, they know the treatment really, really well. Parents know their kids really, really well and together that would be a great way to combine and then to combine it with the, the third leg of the stool is, is really everybody's clinical experience. There's 
things you learn, skills you have in deploying treatment, your clinical experience and taking care of lots of people with that experience, but really then valuing that third leg of the family and the client experience so that they can all work together because that's the way it works best is when we can take those three elements and put them together. So I, I hear some of that in your story. You know, you know your child and you want providers who know their stuff and, and can base it on, on the evidence that's, that's out there. And if we can put those three pieces together, hopefully things can move ahead. Right. Is there anything else you would add that we haven't, that we haven't talked about that you feel like is important to say, given your experience? You know, I think that as parents go, I think, you know, we just have to keep following up weekly because if you don't, uh, things don't get done. And it's uh, a very much, you feel like you're hurrying up and then you wait. So I think that parents need to like really follow up especially like if they're in like a crisis mode and it depends on your area, the resources in your area. But I think you just have to be, you know, you definitely have to be your own advocate for your own, for your own adolescent or adult child. And to just keep this thing, you know, navigated in, in the, in a sense that you get the treatment and you find the right, the right people to help. Yeah. We, we also know from the genetics that, that eating disorders, people who, who get eating disorders often also have, uh, temperament traits of tenacity and persistence. And it sounds like you have those traits, which are a really critical piece in, in getting through this. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us today, Raphael. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the EMILY program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Emily Program. Peace Meal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.